You know, it was Patrick Henry who uttered the words, that famous cry, give me liberty or give me death. And I think Paul the Apostle would have said, right on, Patrick, that he would have been all about that because Paul was a man who championed liberty. He was a man who understood liberty, who moved in liberty um, in his walk with the Lord. There was a, he was free in his walk with Jesus. It was Paul who declared, we looked at several weeks ago, back in chapter 6, all things are lawful for me. In other words, I have liberty. All things are lawful. But then he added, but all things aren't profitable. So the idea was, is, hey, we, we, we got to be wise with our liberty. And Paul was a man who enjoyed and understood his liberty in the Lord, but I think Paul would have also added to that phrase that Patrick Henry uttered, give me liberty or give me death. I think, I think Paul would have added or he would have rephrased it in this way, give me liberty and make sure it doesn't lead to death. The death of those around me, people who might stumble because They see me exercising my liberty. That was the focus of chapter 8. Death in my own life, being slowed down in the race by things that aren't good for me. Death in the way that, that it would hinder the work or impede the work of the gospel. Now, we've spent the last several weeks looking at this idea, this conversation on the subject of using our liberty the right way. And in chapter 8, the focus was um, using our liberty amongst our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And remember, the whole conversation began with this idea of meat that was being sacrificed to idols. And should we eat or should we not eat? And Paul basically said, now, now we know that an idol is nothing. So it's not a big deal to you know, eat the meat sacrificed to idol idols. But Paul, the big idea that we got out of chapter 8 was this, is that love and fellowship should supersede my personal freedom and rights. So Paul ended that discussion in chapter 8 with these words in verse 13, if you want to look back there. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. And remember the word stumble, he uses the idea there of violating their conscience. So it wasn't just the idea that it made them stumble into sin, but my liberty could cause somebody else to violate their own conscience. And Paul was saying, I don't want to do that. So I will sacrifice, I will forfeit my liberty as to not do that. And then last week, we looked at exercising our liberty with unbelievers. That was chapter 9. And the big idea there was that as our mindset, my, our mindset should be that we never want our personal liberty to impede, to hinder, to, be, to become a roadblock for the work of the gospel. And Paul used himself as an example where he talked about how he had the right or the liberty to be compensated in his ministry, but he chose not to do that. And he worked outside of the ministry as a tent maker because he knew that there were those in Corinth who would be offended if he received some type of compensation. So he forfeited his right or his freedom for compensation and actually made it harder on himself 
so that the spreading of the gospel would not be hindered in any way there in Corinth. So in chapter 9, Paul uses himself as a good example of one who was rightly handling his liberty. But here in chapter 10, he uses the nation of Israel as an example of those who didn't use their liberty wisely and they fell into sin. Look at verse 1. He says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Pause there and give me your attention. Israel, we know, was delivered by the Lord... After 400 years of bondage there in Egypt. But they were set free by the power of God. As God brought the plagues down upon Egypt. And his plan was for Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And to lead them to the promised land. But because of their own unbelief. And their own stupidity. And their own sin. Many of them didn't make it. They missed out. And now in Jesus, you and I, the people that Paul's writing to in Corinth, we have been set free from the bondage that we are in, that we were in. We've been set free. We we have this liberty in Christ, but tragically, some believers don't experience the blessing, really, of abundant life for the same reason that the children of Israel didn't. Their unbelief, their sin, their own stupidity. And Paul says, and and kind of the focal point of the first part of this chapter is, we need to learn from their mistakes. Remember Sunday I, I mentioned that there's two ways to learn. You can learn by your own mistakes, which is really, really painful. Last Sunday, if you weren't here, I had a black eye. Still have a little bit of a residual from that. But I was doing something stupid, working on something at my house, not being careful, and boom, I got popped. It was painful, and it looked like I had purple eyeshadow on. Um, <laughs> but uh, So we, we, learn, we can learn by our own mistakes, that's painful, or we can learn from the mistakes of somebody else. Their pain can be our platform for learning. And that's what Paul is wanting us to see here. So Paul begins by by getting them to think about Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Look at verse 1 again. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. And what, what he's talking about here, he's painting a picture that when Israel was released from Egypt... Their first encounter was the Red Sea. Remember uh, as they were leaving Egypt and you know they're heading out through the wilderness and they come to this place where they find themselves boxed in. They've got Mount Pyrrhire on one side, Mount Migdal on the other side, and their back is to the Red Sea. And remember the people started to freak out because they look and they can see the dust you know, coming in the desert and they know what that is. That's Pharaoh and his army barreling down on them. But then God did something amazing he had Moses tell the people to be quiet he stretches out his staff the Red Sea parted and they went through 
And what Paul is saying here is that was, in, that was their baptism, so to speak, as they followed Moses through the Red Sea. But Paul's focus here isn't so much to center on the ceremony of baptism, but more the spiritual identification of baptism. And that's really what baptism is. And he, he calls this their baptism into Moses. And when somebody's being baptized, like we had a baptism here a few weeks ago, and we're having another one in November, but when somebody is being baptized, they're identifying that, hey, I'm with Jesus, I'm with Christ. And Paul's saying this was their, their baptism, it was identifying them with Moses and with the Lord. And, and so too, the Corinthians, like us, were identified with Christ in their baptism. They were baptized into Christ. And, you know, we've mentioned that baptism speaks of our old man being buried with Jesus in death. That's what, you know, it's a burial as we're, you know, going under the water. And then we come up out of the water and it symbolizes a resurrection and now our desire to walk in that newness of life. So Paul's focus here is on their identification that they were baptized as they were going through, you know, the Red Sea unto Moses and we have been baptized into Jesus. So Paul says, remember how they were set free, how the Lord led them through the Red Sea. And then he mentions, and they followed under the cloud. And this idea of being under the cloud is also a neat picture of our Christian experience. You see, too often people think of this idea with the children of Israel in the cloud is that it was like they were camped here, the clouds over there, and every time the clouds started to move, it's like, okay, we got to pack up, the cloud's moving, we got to follow it. But that's not really the picture. The picture is the cloud was hovering over them because it gave shelter to them from that hot desert sun. And so the idea was is they would be camped underneath the cloud and all of a sudden the cloud would start to move and it'd be like, okay, cloud's moving. You know, we got to pack up and let's go, you know, because the cloud, not off in the distance, some, you know, cloud off in the distance, but the cloud that was right over them. And that's such a great picture for us of the Christian life, of following the Lord and walking in the spirit. Because you see, Jesus, he's our shelter. And Jesus, he desires to lead our lives. That's what walking in the spirit is all about. We're under Christ. He's the head, the Bible says, of the body, his church. He's the brain. He's the one that's giving, you know, instructions. And Jesus, as our head, he wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. He wants to direct us. And that happens as we abide in him, as we stay connected to him, as we seek to be in tune with his spirit. And so the idea is like, okay, he's moving. I sense God's moving in this direction. I see he's moving in that direction. I'm going to move. You know, there are some things in our life where we need to pray. We need to pray and we need to wait upon the Lord for his direction. You know, big decisions that that maybe you're making, you know, that's really, really important that you're spending that time. And those of you who are married as husband and wife, okay, we need to seek the Lord in this. We need to hear from him. But sometimes in our daily life, we, we we can't do that. We don't have the time to do that. It's like, you know, we can't, you know, there's a decision that needs to be made, like right now, in this moment and in this instant. I can't go, okay, sorry, I'm going to go take an hour and pray. No, it has to be made right now. 
And this is the, that idea of walking in the Spirit is as we're abiding in the Lord, as we're seeking to, you know, draw near to Him and seek Him, that daily, in our daily lives, in some of the most normal and some of the most, you know, even what we might think of mundane ways, He's seeking to lead us. And as we are, are seeking to abide in Him and draw near to Him and be in tune with Him, we sense, hey, God's moving right now in this way. He wants me to talk to that person or he wants me to go here or not go there. And you sense that that moving of the Holy Spirit. And that's this idea, this picture that Paul's painting here of how God moved the children of Israel in the wilderness. That's how God seeks to move us. But then he also, not just mentioning their spiritual identification, that they were baptized into Moses, and and not just talking about how they were led through the wilderness, but then he speaks about their spiritual provision in verse 3. Notice, he says, And they all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And then this is this heavy thing he says here. And that rock was Jesus. Now the word he uses here for rock is not petros. The word petros is speaks of a small stone. He uses the term here petra which speaks of a mountain like a Gibraltar type of rock. And he's making reference that that's, that's who Jesus is. He's the one that the church is build, built upon. And he says the rock that followed them was Christ who provided for them. And they drank of that spiritual rock. And this is the reason why. Remember when God told Moses to go and strike the rock so that water could come out? The, you know, they, they were thirsty. And he's like, hey, go strike the rock. And Moses went because he was angry at the people and he struck it twice. And God got mad at Moses for that. It was that very thing that the Lord said that you're not going to be, you're not going to go into the land of promise. Because he struck the rock twice and we think, guy, that seems harsh. But that rock was a picture of Jesus. And Moses was to strike that rock once That it would bring forth the provision that the people of Israel needed because Jesus was struck once, right? He was struck once. He died once, the Bible says, for our salvation. He wasn't struck twice. He's not repeatedly struck. And so Moses was defiling the picture that God had there. And, And so God says, this rock that followed them, that provided for them, the rock was Jesus. And it was Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 37, who uttered these words there during the Feast of Tabernacle in this just incredible moment when Israel is camping for seven days there in Jerusalem and everybody comes there and they're living in tents and it's kind of a commemoration of their time in the wilderness and every single day the priests go up to the the altar on the temple mount where they're going to sacrifice and every day one of them takes a picture a pitcher not a not a pitcher like baseball but a a pitcher like of of water and he goes down to the pool of uh down below and he and he goes to draw water from it I think it's the pool of Siloam and he's drawing water from it and he comes up and he pours it and it's every day it's kind of like um, the, the Lord saying I'm the one that provided for you I'm the one that that refreshed you but on the last day of the feast 
And this was, they did this for years and years and years. He comes up and he takes the pitcher, but this time there's no water on it. And it's like he's seeking to pour it out. And it's the, the idea that God was saying that the Messiah has not come, the one who's going to bring the ultimate refreshment. And everybody gets silent. Now picture this, okay? There's people all camped around, all the priests are on the Temple Mount. There's this big, silent, solemn moment that, that you know, hey, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to partake yet in the Messiah's not here yet. And Jesus stands up and he breaks the silence by saying this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then it says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in would receive. Jesus breaks the silence and says, hey, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I'm that fountain of living water. It's my spirit in your heart refreshing you. And what's interesting about this, this is also the last invitation in the Bible. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's the last invitation from the Lord that is given out. So Paul takes them back in their history where they had been delivered from bondage. They had been fed. They had been led. This miraculous water was provided for them. And they they were given all of the privileges that you could imagine. And yet they blew it big time and forfeited the promised land. Look at verse five. He says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That phrase, most of them, is an understatement. We're talking out of three million that made it out of, the, 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 out of Egypt in the first generation. Only two guys, Joshua and Caleb, are the only ones that make it in, that they get to be the ones to lead in the second generation. Because when they went from Egypt, God brought them to Kadesh Barnea, which is about an 11-day journey from Egypt. And they're at the doorway of the promised land. And you guys know the story. The 12 spies get sent in and 10 of them come back and they're like, we can't go in. You know, the, the land is awesome. The land is great. It's everything God said it is. But there's giants in the land and they're too big for us to hit. And Joshua and Caleb say, hey guys, you know, we, we, the, God's given us. In fact, Jock, Caleb says, and I love this. He says, you know what? These giants are actually our bread. They're the very thing that God, in other words, they're the very thing that God wants to use to sustain our and and to grow our faith, to feed our faith as we step out and trust him. But you guys know the story. The nation didn't listen to the 12 spies or the two spies. They listened to the 10, the ones who, who didn't believe. And because of that, they perished. Because of their unbelief, the whole first generation wandered and was lost. And then Paul says this in verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul says, look, all this happened to them. Their wanderings and, and all of this. It's not just historical incidences for, for us to look at and go, oh yeah, history but practical illustrations for us. 
A personal application so that we might learn from their mistakes. Because here's the thing. All of us, all of us in this room, we also are on a journey. We are on a journey. We're on a journey right now with the Lord. We're not wandering in a wilderness because of our unbelief and disobedience. But we are on a journey with the Lord. And we're waiting for a different kind of promised land that Hebrews chapter 11 talks about, you know, a a land that is without foundations, whose builder, or is with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. A land, it's, it's heaven, it's eternity, it's what God, we're waiting for that. And we're in this journey right now, in our own, you know, journey here with God where we're going through. And, and Paul says we need to learn from their mistakes of what not to do. And Paul's going to list five things here that we need to learn. If you're taking notes, the first thing that he says that we need to avoid and to watch out for is lust. And what's interesting, when we hear the word lust, we almost always think of it in relationship to sex. But that's not the picture that's being painted here. The reference here is to Numbers chapter 11. And in Numbers chapter 11, this is, this is what Paul is indicting them for. This is the reference he's pointing back to. They were complaining about their food that God was providing for them. They were tired, you see, of the manna. Remember, as they were in the wilderness, God provided manna, this, this you know, bread from heaven, that every single morning it would appear, you know, like the dew on the grass. They, they would wake up and there would be these manna wafers, these manna loaves for them. And they were just to, you know, go and, and pick enough for that day. Except on the, the day before the Sabbath day, then they would take enough for two days. But, but they were only to take enough for that one day, like they had to trust now think about this, okay? You're in the, out in the wilderness, you know, there's no restaurants, and God's saying, okay, I'm bringing manna, but you gotta just pick enough for one day. How many of you are picking enough for two, you know? How many of you are like, oh, no way, man, I, I'm a, I got a big family here, you know? I'm gonna, you know, and what would happen, those who did that, like the next day it would be all moldy, you know? And so God was like saying, look, gotta trust me, enough for just one day. But so day after day after day, I mean, they're making manna. They're making, like, they're, they're, they're eating manna everything. You know, they're eating manna pancakes and banana bread and manna cotti and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they get to this place where they're just, like, tired of manna. And they start yelling, give us meat. We want meats. Even though this manna every single day was a miracle. Think about that. Every day. Every day. How many of you think, like, yeah, I just, Lord, I want to see a miracle. They're like seeing a miracle every single day. This supernatural provision, but they were unsatisfied with God's provision. And they start longing for and crying out for, we want meats. And let me ask you this question. I want you to think for a moment. You ever feel like that? Do you ever feel that you're really unsatisfied with where the Lord has you? You ever find yourself where you're just really unsatisfied with how he's providing for you? Lord, it's just not enough. Lord, I don't like where I'm at. I don't like this place. That's a dangerous place to be. Where you find yourself wanting something else. Or wanting someone else. You're not satisfied with what the Lord has given to you and not satisfied with where he's placed you. That's the nature of lust. 
is it's always wanting something else. They were lusting after meat. And you know what? You know what God said? Okay, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. Now Moses thought, okay, he's going to give him meat. You know, how's he going to do this? And Moses starts thinking, are we going to kill some cattle? Are we going to go fish somewhere and get some fish? Moses made the mistake that I often find myself making. Is he looked at what was available to him and thought, we only got two options. We can kill some cattle or we can go fishing. That's what Moses was doing. He only saw two options, but God had a totally different plan in mind. And here's what happened. The people looked out and they saw what looked like a cloud off in the distance. But it wasn't a normal cloud. It was actually a cloud. (laughs) It was a big flock of quail flying about two cubits off the ground. Now that's about three feet off the ground. And how many of you played baseball growing up, okay? That, that's like right in your wheelhouse, all right? Three feet, I mean, that's like waist high. That, that's like, you know, you want to just take, boom. And, and that's what they did. They took clubs and they started, you know, banging, you know, hitting the, the quail as they're coming and they're, they're dropping dead. In fact, it, there's actually you know, a baseball analogy to this because it says that every man had gathered 10 homers, okay? <laughs> Seriously. That's what it says, 10 homers, And they ate, it says, so much quail that it was coming out of their nostrils. I mean, they went for it. All right, me. And they started eating. Now, has anybody here ever eaten quail? Anybody? Have you? Is it tasty? It's really good. Okay. Well, there you go. God was like, you want some meat? I'm going to give you some great meat. I've never had quail. Never wanted quail. But, uh, you know, but these guys get to the point where they're like, if I see another quail, I'm going to die. You know, it was coming out of their nostrils. But check this out. The psalmist writing in Psalm 106, verse 14, recounting the story, says this, that God gave them their request but sent leanness to their souls. And guys, that's such a heavy statement. And it's such a vivid illustration of what lust does, is that it doesn't satisfy, but it destroys. Lust is like a fire. The more you feed it, the hotter it gets and the more it demands. And it's never, ever satisfied. And that's where these guys found themselves. God gave into the request, but he sent leanness to their souls. It didn't satisfy. So the first thing he wants them to watch out for is lust. The second thing Paul tells them to watch out for is idolatry. Look at verse 7. And do not become idolaters as some were, some of as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, the reference here that Paul is quoting is from Exodus chapter 32. And this is before the Lord, this is when the Lord sends Moses up to the top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And Moses is gone for 40 days. So picture this, you're out in the wilderness, you're out in the middle of nowhere, Moses is your leader, Moses is, you know, he's their pastor, let's say, and he's gone 
40 days, he's gone below. And the people are like, where, where is Moses? Where's our leader? Where's our pastor? So you know what they do? They turn to the assistant, Aaron. And they're like, you become our leader. And they give Aaron all of their gold. And Aaron puts their gold in the fire and he makes this golden cow. And quoting from Exodus 32, 6, Paul says, the people sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. Now, the eating and drinking referred to excessive feasting. It's like they were partying. That's the idea. They're throwing a party. But when he says that, that word that they stood to play, that word play is a euphemism for sexual relations. It's, understand this. They weren't playing tag, okay? No, they were engaging in sexual immorality. Now, Moses is up on the mountain. He's hearing this commotion down below. It's like it sounds like a war's going on down there. And it's not a war, it's a party. And Moses comes down and he looks at Aaron. He's like, what are you doing, bro? And Aaron gives the excuse to beat all excuses. How many of your parents here? Okay, how many of your kids have ever given you a lame excuse? Okay, this beats it. Okay, this is Aaron's excuse. They gave me their gold. We put it in the fire. Out came this calf. What else were we supposed to do but take off all our clothes and dance around it? You know, that's his excuse that he gives. So the idolatry led to sexual immorality, which makes a lot of sense because sexual immorality in and of itself is a form of idolatry. It's the worship of self-pleasure. And that's what's happening here. The third area of sin that we're to watch out for that, that Paul mentions here is sexual immorality. That's where he goes. It's like he says in verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Now here he's referring to Numbers chapter 25. So he's giving him this history lesson. And in Numbers chapter 25, the children of Israel committed harlotry with the daughters of Moab. And 24,000 died because of their sin. Now, this has caused some consternation and some controversy because Paul says here 23,000 fell in one day. And in Numbers 25, it says that 24,000 died. So the, the, the question is, okay, why does Paul mention here, you know, a different number? And I think the answer is really, really simple. When the plague hit, Paul says 24,000 died in one day. And then over the next couple of days, another thousand died to make it a total of 24. Doesn't say in Numbers 25 that 24,000 died in one day. It just says 24,000 died. Paul says 24,000 of them died in one day. But the point that we need to catch here is he's saying, watch out for sexual immorality. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul talks about sexual immorality. And I love what he says here. Because a lot of times people, they, they play around with this. You know, people who are believers and they get, you know, maybe people are single or people that are dating and they get, get caught up in this. And I, love what, I love what Paul says here. He says, look, for this is the will of God. Now, there's not a whole lot of things in the Bible where it says this is God's will. But this is one of them. Where God says, this is my will. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. 
that you should abstain from sexual morality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. He's talking about his own body, her own body. That you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles that don't know God. Remember when I'm always telling you this principle in the New Testament that, that God is always calling us, hey, I want you to be who you are in Jesus instead of who you used to be in the flesh. That's a New Testament principle that God repeats over and over and over again. And he's repeating it here. Hey, you've been sanctified. You've been set apart. You belong to Jesus. You know, you, you need to know that you can possess your body in sanctification and honor. And that you don't have to be like people that don't know God. That are driven by their passion and their lust. But then he says this. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother or sister in this manner. And this is a heavy statement that oftentimes people never think about. Paul is saying that sexual immorality is a form of idolatry that takes from others, that actually defrauds them. It takes advantage of someone. And Paul says, don't do that. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother or sister in this manner. And here's why. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness but to holiness. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man. Okay. Say that again. He who rejects this does not reject me. If you're listening right now, you know, either here or online, and you're going, I, it's, it's, that's just your opinion, Pastor Rob. No, this is God. He says, who, who says, you're not rejecting man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And that last phrase is so key because this is the key. This is what he's saying. You know why you can possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor? You know why you can walk in holiness as a believer? Because you have the Holy Spirit to empower you and to lead you and to guide you if you'll just follow him, if you'll just depend upon him. So the third thing he says to avoid is sexual immorality. And then the fourth area in verse 9 He says this, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And now he's talking about the testing of the Lord that took place in in Numbers chapter 21. This is what he's referring to. This is where this verse and this section of them being destroyed by the serpents comes from. And again, they were complaining this time about their food and water. And it was more the idea that they just were wanting to go back to Egypt. You know, they came to that place. We're like, remember how great it was in Egypt? Remember the melons and the garlic and the leek? And I mean, we, we really had it made in Egypt. The food that was provided for us there. And you know, that's so the enemy, isn't it? The enemy so much loves to distort our view of things. He loves to get us to look back on our old life, our BC days, and think, man, I was really, really having fun there. These guys are like, Egypt was great. No, it wasn't. They were slaves. 
They were doing hard work, you know, out in the sun. They were being beaten. It was difficult. And the same thing is true of you. You might look back and think, yeah, I mean, I remember that party when I was in high school. I remember that, you know, that party at the office, you know. And what you forget about is how later on that evening you had your face over the toilet because you were so drunk. You forget about how you felt the next morning, that massive headache, because you had a horrible hangover. That's so what the enemy loves to do. He loves to get us to, forget, to remember the good times and to forget about the consequences. And so they were testing the Lord by wanting to go back to Egypt. And, and the same thing, people test the Lord by wanting to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord. I think, some, I, I think there might be some here tonight that that's where you're at. You're straddling the fence as a Christian. You've got one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord. And you know, that's the worst place to be. It's the worst way to live. Because here's why. You've got too much of the world to really enjoy the Lord. And you've got too much of the Lord to really enjoy the world. So you're like constantly dealing with that, that condemnation and, and the conviction that, that of the Spirit. And here's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6. He said, guys, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. It's the principle in that we see in the New Testament of sowing and reaping. He says this, for he who sows to his flesh is of the flesh will reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know, Jesus made this statement to his disciples. He said, guys, understand, the Spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. And any time that you try to straddle the fence, nine times out of ten, you know what's going to happen? Your flesh is going to win. Your flesh, the world, is going to pull you down. You're not going to pull it up. That's so often what happens. And so we need to learn to discipline our flesh. Because Paul says we reap what we sow. If we're sowing to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. But if we're so into the spirit, we reap everlasting life. The fifth warning that he gives is linked also to their complaining in verse 10. No, he says, notice what he says, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And the Israelites, they were a complaining people. And the reference here is that they were complaining about their leadership. And Paul's pointing to two ideas or two events. One was in Numbers chapter 14 and the other was in Numbers chapter 16. We talked about the one in Numbers 14 already. It's when they, you know, didn't listen to the two spies and they listened to the ten spies and they, they you know, didn't believe that God would lead them into the land of promise. And they began to murmur and complain and even threaten to kill Moses and Aaron. And then that sentiment carried over into Numbers chapter 16 when a guy by the name of Korah and his family tried to come against Moses. And the result of that, 14,700 of them were destroyed in one day. Murmuring is dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for our lives and the lives of others. And really, it's a sin. And it's something that God, it doesn't, he doesn't take lightly or in, in view of his grace. 
You know, it's been said that complaining is the language of hell. That's what they're going to be doing there, complaining. Grumbling, complaining, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's not going to be praise going on in hell. It's all complaining. It's all grumbling. And, and in hell, it's complaining at, man, I was such a stupid idiot, you know, for not believing in Jesus. That's what they're going to be complaining about. Complaining is the language of hell, but thanksgiving and praise is the language of heaven. And when people are complaining, why isn't this happening? Why isn't that? And they're challenging God's wisdom. And what they're doing is they're challenging his wisdom. They're challenging his grace. They're challenging his goodness. They're challenging his love. They're saying, God, you don't really care about me. Complaining dishonors our heavenly father, but contentment glorifies him. So these are five things that Paul says we need to watch out for, that we need to learn, as we are on our journey right now in the Lord, we need to learn from their example. That we wouldn't get caught up in lusting with, for things that we don't have, being discontent with what God has given us. That we wouldn't get caught up in idolatry or sexual immorality or tempting the Lord or complaining against God. And then notice what he says in verse 12. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition or our instruction, our encouragement is the idea. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And here's what Paul's telling us is that in our liberty or our liberty can cause us sometimes to drop our guard. Our liberty can cause us at times to think, you know what, I got this. Paul says, no, no, no. To him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. One of my favorite Bible commentators said this about verse 12. Ray Stedman, he said, they were types according to verse 12, but they were also targets. Types and targets. And we are too. We are under attack. We are not living in a beautiful, pleasant world designed for our enjoyment. And the quicker we get rid of that idea, the better. We are in a battlefield, under attack. We are running a race that must be won. We are fighting a battle with a clever and ruthless enemy. And we must never forget it. Because his devices are clever and his strategies are very subtle and we can easily fall. Therefore, to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. You know, it's been said that a strength can actually be a double weakness. You know why? When we think that we're strong in an area, it makes us more vulnerable because we have a tendency to drop our guard. You know, in this battle that we find ourselves in, there's two places in your life that you need to pay the most attention to. One is the areas where you know you're weak. It's like you know, okay, I'm, I get attacked in this area all the time. You always need to be on guard there. But the other area where you really need to be on guard is where you think you're strong. And the area where you think like, you know, hey, this is an area where I really don't struggle because that's the area that you're going to have the tendency to want to drop your guard and Satan's going to look for a way to get in the back door. And so understanding that, Paul says this in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. 
But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Here's what he's saying. Life is full of temptations. As we close tonight, there's three observations I want to make quickly here from verse 13. Number one, there are no new temptations. He says that there is no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. It's common to man. It's like, hey, others have gone through this. Others will go through this in the future. It's, it's not, what you're going through, it's not uncommon. You're like, hey, you know, I'm the only one who's ever gone. No, no, no. What you're going through, whatever the trial is, others have gone through it and others will. Number two, he says God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able in other words, he's not going to put you in a situation where you're going to be there, you know, a moment longer or a degree hotter than you can bear. Now, I want to just say this, though, about this verse. This does not mean, because I hear people use this verse to give this idea that I really don't think is a biblical idea that they'll say, hey, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. As I read the Bible, I see God's always giving people more than they can handle. I mean, Moses with the children of Israel before the Red Sea, that was more than they could handle. Joshua before Jericho was more than they can handle. Gideon with his 300 up against 185,000 Midianites was more than he could handle. David up against Goliath. I could go on and on and on. God's always bringing us into situations that are more than we can handle. That's not what this verse is talking about. It's in those instances when we find ourselves in a place where this is more than I can handle, that God is wanting us to you know, surrender, that we really learn the great principle of there's victory in surrender. Because in surrender, we see that he's strong in our weakness. We see that the battle belongs to the Lord. This is regarding the trial. And God is saying, look, I'm not going to give you more than you. You're not going to be tempted beyond what you are able. And here's really why. It's the third point. It's because he always provides a way of escape. Now, sometimes, listen, the way of escape is to not put yourself in the place of temptation to begin with. Like for an example, somebody who knows I'm an alcoholic, you know, I, I have a drinking problem in my past. I'm sober now, but, but you know, I know that that's a temptation for me. So the way of escape for that guy is don't go hang out at a bar. Okay. Don't go to that place where, you know, alcohol is going to be, you know, readily available. Stay away from that because you know, that's your way of escape. But other times the way of escape is where the Lord is going to, you know, bring you out of something. That he just comes in in his power and he removes you out of that situation. But other times the way of escape is like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he helps you through it. And you sense that, hey, but the point is, hey, you're never going to be tempted beyond what you're able because there's always going to be a way of escape because I am for you and I am with you. You're going to make it to the other side. I love this phrase that you see over and over again in the Old Testament. It says, and it came to pass. And you know what? That's such a great line for us because whatever you're going through, know this, it's going to come to pass. There's going to be a passing. It's going to come to an end. 
So we find ourselves here tonight, all of us, you know, Pete was talking earlier about this crazy world that we're living in. And, you know, we, we sense the consternation and we sense the, the tension. And we, you know, have been dealing with various difficulties, you know, because of it all. But listen, we're on this journey with the Lord. And we're seeking the Lord. The Bible says that we are pilgrims and sojourners here in this life. And I love what Warren Wiersbe said once. He, he said this, a vagabond is somebody that doesn't have a home. That's not us. A fugitive is somebody who's running from his home. But a sojourner is somebody who's away from home. And a pilgrim is somebody who is going home. And that's us. We're pilgrims and sojourners that the Lord is trying to say, hey, guys, remember the big picture. This world is not your home. And like Pete was talking about tonight, we're looking forward to that day. When King Jesus comes and we come back with him and he sets up the kingdom and, and he rules and reigns and he makes things right. But in the meantime, we go through this life on our journey as pilgrims and sojourners seeking to be wise, seeking to not grow weary in well-doing, but trusting in the Lord, running well, Believing that our God, as we sang tonight, is our way maker. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this picture that you've given us here tonight of Israel. And Lord, we hear your exhortation to us tonight to learn from their mistakes. Lord, if we're honest, all of us here in this room have made plenty of our own mistakes. We thank you, Lord, that you tell us that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, as we are walking in this world as your pilgrims and sojourners, we want to learn from their mistakes of what to avoid so that we can walk and run well for you in this world. We love you, Lord. Just thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your incredible love for us. We praise you, Lord.